0: Last week, we talked about the Exodus shape of this uh, larger passage, that it's a proleptic Exodus. It's a kind of mini Exodus. It's Jacob's Exodus. God comes to Jacob in a dream and tells him to leave the tyrant, the foreign land, and to take his people and his wealth with him out of that foreign land to the promised land. Same general shape. So Jacob leaves secretly. He crosses the Euphrates type of baptism, and he sets his face toward Gilead, which is likely a type of Sinai. Notice, uh, too, uh, it's a dream that gets Jacob in trouble with his family, Laban, uh, and with Jacob's son, J- uh, Joseph, it's a dream that gets him in trouble with his family, his brothers. Uh, so another kind of, uh, I guess, even with Joseph's dream, we could say that that's almost the first part of that Exodus story. Um, But after three days, Laban hears that Jacob has secretly escaped. Remember, we mentioned last week that the the three days is peppered throughout this narrative as it is with the exodus finding its culmination in Christ's resurrection on the third day. Um, So after three days, Laban learns about Jacob's exodus and he immediately chases after him like Pharaoh chasing after uh, Jacob's children. Laban, I believe, like Pharaoh, has the intent of hurting Jacob perhaps even killing him. In verse 29 he says to Jacob, "It is in my power to do you harm." Loving uncle Jacob or loving uncle Laban making it clear that he is strong enough to harm righteous Jacob. But what happened to Laban during this uh, seven-day journey to catch up with Jacob. I actually wanted to put into uh, Google Maps how long it took on feet on foot to go from Haran to uh, Gilead, see how long, because it can tell you on foot how long it takes to travel that. So he, he catches up from, from, from Haran to Gilead, Israel, so Iraq to Israel in seven days, which is pretty impressive. Um, and there's also likely some kind of uh, creational uh, suggestion with that as well. But uh, what happens? What's the main thing that God happens? Dreams. He has a dream. That's right. He has a dream from God. It's it's divine intervention. Um, and this dream, what, is, what does God say? Don't. Don't what? Don't don't do good or- yeah, right. Be careful. Don't speak good or evil about, or it says good or bad. That's how our translation, the New King James says, don't speak good or bad against Jacob. Now, that's a, that's a straightforward enough phrase, but I think what this is, is actually a, a shorthand way of saying, don't judge Jacob. There's a sense in which um, this good or uh, bad, the the Hebrew words there, uh, tov and ra, uh, it's the same words that are used in Genesis 2 of the knowledge of good and bad, or good and evil. And we have this here, and uh, we don't have time to get into this totally, but... Uh, basically the, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was something that God was going to grow Adam and Eve up into uh, during the creational week God is making judgments on creation he, he creates um, he sees and then he pronounces a judgment this is good he creates he sees he pronounces a judgment this is good this is good this is, good. This is very good and then there's a point where he creates and he sees and he, and, and, and he says something is not good what is that Nope. He he sees that man is alone. He says it's not good. So God is making these judgments during creation, the creation week, of things that are good and things that are bad, um, and that is what uh, I think is suggested here when um, God says to Laban, uh, "You may not make judgments." We could read it that way. Uh, judgments are for mature people people who learn obedience. Adam and Eve didn't learn obedience. You learn obedience, God grows you up into the ability to make judgments like Solomon. Uh, but Laban is no Solomon. And, and, and uh, so only obedient, mature people are allowed to make judgments like God. We are to grow up to be like God and make these kinds of, this is good, this is good, this is bad. God comes to Laban, says you're not allowed to do this. Okay? So uh, that's uh, and particularly, he's a wicked man, and the wicked are wicked cannot make judgments on the righteous. So that's uh, that's uh, a part of what God is doing there with Laban. It's also worth uh, considering. Um, there's two dreams here. God gives a dream to Jacob, don't stay, leave, and then he gives a dream to Laban, don't judge. Um, and this is, I would say, the Padanaram version of God drowning uh, Pharaoh's army. It's he crosses. He doesn't. He doesn't drown Laban and his army um, in the Euphrates, but he arrests Laban's wicked ambitions. If we are to read between the lines, I have the power to harm you, but I can't because the God of your father told me not to, uh, told me not to pronounce any judgments over you. So God is working. It's worth considering God's sovereign orchestration behind the scenes here um, to realize God's protection. God is protecting Jacob in a way that Jacob would not have knowledge of. God goes to Laban in a dream and says, you are not allowed to touch Jacob. And so this is, a, this is a way of God arresting Pharaoh, of stopping the enemies from um, uh, 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 doing harm to his people. Um, and this is worth considering in our own lives. Uh, how many enemies do we have? How many Labans are in our lives that, are, that, 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 would, that would like to hurt us? And God intervened. God said, you can't do this. He changes their heart. He changes their mind. He, he does something that we're completely unaware with, but God is sovereign over all of these things, and He protects His people. It's 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 God acting as a shield for Jacob, which is what God said to Abraham: "I will be your shield and great reward." He's, he's, he, there's no greater protection and shield than God protecting us, and that's what we see here. There's, and there's great comfort in seeing this. Um, it, it really kind of it puts to death these fleshly desires to um, to protect ourselves in all kinds of ways, or to vindicate ourselves in all kinds of fleshly ways. Um, and I think that that's part of the Abrahamic faith. God is our shield. Okay. So Laban uh, overtakes uh, Jacob in the mountains of Gilead in verse 25. Uh, We see that the tents of Jacob and Laban are pitched. Uh, This kind of language is, is often used throughout the Bible when people are about to go to war with each other. They pitch their tents. So we have Laban's tent pitched, Jacob's tent pitched. So there's kind of this like background of looming battle, possibly. And then we also see that there's an audience of brethren. Verse 25 says that Laban's brethren are with him. Uh, and then in verse 20, uh, 32, Jacob tells Laban concerning the stolen idol, um, "Set it in the presence of our brethren." And then in verse 37, Jacob repeats this, saying, "Set it before my brethren and your brethren, and let them judge." So the family is around, the brothers are around, and they're acting as judges. And so, what is that? This is kind of a—it's kind of a, a primitive courtroom. There, there, it's a primitive courtroom. Uh, Jacob is the defense attorney and Laban is the prosecution, uh, and, and Laban is accusing Jacob of various things. Uh, he's not rightly doing it. He's doing it with these questions, um, but uh, the brothers are around, and they're acting as judges. So so that's also worth considering. Um, when we start thinking more typologically of what's going on here, when La- if Laban is the, sa- is the Satan figure, Jacob as the Christ figure, and then Jacob's flock there as well, um, it becomes even more, I guess to put it in Protestant language, there's forensic aspects going on here, this courtroom aspect. Okay, so um, uh, Laban's, I, I alluded to this already, Laban is... Um, He's kind of the Satan figure. He's accusing the brethren, and it's not this heavy-handed, direct way. It's this indirect, slimy, twisted questions kind of way. Um, it's crafty, and it, they are questions that are made to make Jacob look bad and made to make Laban look good. Um, why did you carry away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? What a ridiculous way to phrase a question. We, we've already read Rachel and Leah were, were with you. Our father's eaten up our inheritance. Do whatever the Lord says to you. These are not captives taken by the sword, right? So he's, he's playing it up for the brethren who are watching. Why did you do this in secret? Why did you steal away unknown to me? Why did you steal away? The word steal is brought up a lot, right? Um, he mentions... Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, he me- he mentioned stealing multiple times, multiple times. He's trying to make Jacob look like a thief. <laughs> he's he's really do- He's trying to make Jacob look like an oppressor, and Laban is trying to make himself look like the victim. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> like this is this is the world we live in. We live in a world of these Labans who project all of their insanity onto the righteous. They accuse righteous people of the very things that they do. They are thieves. Uh, and they are oppressors, um, and this is what Laban, Laban is, is, is asking questions that are exactly the opposite of the reality of the case, um, and this is a satanic kind of tactic, so don't be like Laban, don't Don't pretend that you're a victim. Don't whine about perceived wrongs. Don't whine about actual wrongs. And especially don't twist words that lie about other people. This is what the world does. Uh, But it's also what unfaithful brothers in the faith will do to you as well. I mean, he's a brother. Uh, He's a physical brother. But he's he's also a pagan. But this is what brothers in the faith will do um, to you. So don't be like them. Uh, Laban, he says, I might have sent you away with joy in songs with timbrel and harp, and you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Does anybody believe this? This is what Laban would have done. No, we've already seen Jacob tried to leave before, and Laban would, did not bring out timbrels and harp and, and, and give him uh, a blessed uh, departure. He, he gets him to stay. Now, there might be some complicity with Jacob in staying on that. I don't know. But this is not Laban's disposition. It's very reasonable for Jacob to leave the way that he did. Um, and I think Jacob is, uh, or, or Laban is, trying to play it up in front of the court. I would have done all these things. Uh, he's, trying to make lo- he's trying to look like the good father. He also says, now you have done foolishly in so doing, which, in my mind, gets pretty close to making a judgment of speaking good or bad of, of uh, Jacob. Um, you have done foolishly. Sounds like judgment language to me. Mm-hmm. Very typical of Laban to kind of break these things. But um, we see that uh, we see that Laban. This is another kind of. This is amazing to me. He he. It's in this judge judgment setting. All the brothers around. He publicly tells everybody why he doesn't hurt Jacob. He says because the God of Jacob's father told me not to do so. In my mind, this is a mixture of Laban's pride and a, and a misstep. Why would he do this? This only makes Jacob look good. It makes Laban look bad and it makes Jacob look good. It shows that Jacob's God has favor on him. It's, I mean, imagine him saying that. I, I would hurt you, but your God told me not to. Um, it seems like a foolish thing for Laban to publicly make, make known in this courtroom um, aspect. So, yeah, why does he do it? I think he can't help but to boast of the power that he has. What his intentions are. And if we take him as the satan figure, this is this is the satanic serpentine flaw, overplaying your hand, showing what you want to do, wanting everyone to know what you, the power that you have, kind of this, this uh, braggarts kind of uh, uh, type of thing, I think is, is kind of a satanic um, uh, vice. He can't help but to let everybody know what he could do. Right? But it doesn't help him out. He wants to flex in front of everyone. And then Laban says, uh, and now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. I'm I'm convinced that this is another tactic of the wicked um, when they are accusing the righteous. Does Moses, the narrator, ever tell us that Jacob greatly longs for his father's house? No. What's the reason for Jacob leaving? He comes to him in a dream and says to leave. It's a commandment from God to leave. Now, Jacob may greatly long for his father's house, but we're not told that anywhere in the narrative. He's obeying the word of God and what Laban is doing is diminishing that, ascribing some kind of emotional overwhelming state that Jacob is in. And this is what the wicked will do to the righteous. They psychologize and they diminish and they put you in this little box. They the wicked are the dumbest people on the planet, but they think that they are the cleverest people on the planet. They think they've had they have you figured out. They think They got a degree in psychology from Garbage State University, and now they know the hearts of men. And so when you go and do something that is obedient to the word of God, they'll say, well, he's just emotionally attached to his father's home. And that's why he's doing these things. I grant I may be reading into this here, but this is this is the kind of thing, if you've obeyed the word of God, you know that this is the kind of thing the wicked will do to you. I'm convinced Laban is doing something uh, of that here. Um, Let's see here. Yeah. The the poor baby is homesick. He, He reduces Jacob's actions here. Okay. Oh, and also, when people do this, when people... Belittle you, and they're condescending, and they psychologize, and they put you in this little box. Um, you know, he's he's angry, he's he's mad, he doesn't want to submit to authority. Whatever it is, whatever thing, Jesus says you're blessed. He says you're blessed, and he says great is your reward in heaven. This is this is another way in which the 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 wicked just lose because they're heaping up they're heaping up blessings for you in heaven. Um, so yeah, that's something to keep in mind during, during these kinds of things, which also gives us a kind of contentedness. It's like, go ahead, go ahead, say all this stuff. You're just running up my heavenly reward credit card miles with all of this stuff, right? Bring it on, Bring it on yeah. Now in the midst of all these veiled um, accusations and kind of half truths and lies, we have this one true question at the end. It's not an absolute true question, but it's about as close to the truth as we can get. Why did you steal my gods? So in my view, his, his speech here is just filled with all kinds of misdirection. But then he attaches this thing, which is true. Why'd you steal my gods? That did happen. It wasn't Jacob himself, but Jacob as the covenantal head of this flock uh, did. He didn't know it. But, but this is another way that Satan works. Laban as a Satan figure. All of this half-truth, all of this misdirection, but there's truth nestled in there. And that's what kind of gives it a little bit more traction. Also, uh, something that's interesting here is this stolen idol, I think there's a connection to Laban's heart. Uh, I think Moses is making a connection between Laban's heart and um, the idol. In verse 26, Laban begins his speech, his opening statement, by saying, Why have you stolen away unknown to me? Um, Or some translations will say, Why have you deceived me? But um, if you just translate it literally, uh, the word there is my heart. Why have you stolen my heart, or my inner man, uh, (coughs) levavi? Every other place that this word appears, it's almost always translated as my heart. In the Psalms, it's pretty much always translated as my heart. Why have you stolen my heart? And then he ends in verse 30, why have you stolen my gods? And so I think that at the beginning, we see that heart and God connection towards the end. So Laban's heart is with his idolatry. Laban's heart is with his gods. Why have you stolen my heart? He wants to know where his stolen heart is. And in verse 31, Jacob answers. He, he replies to his questions about his daughters, and then he replies to the question about the gods. To the daughters... It's interesting. Jacob doesn't defend himself. He doesn't say, "And take away your daughter's captive by the sword." It's a pretty unfair way to like. You know, like Laban is asking questions like the modern media, you know, uh, "When did you stop beating your wife?" kind of type thing. And he, he, the only thing he says is he actually just shines the the light on him. He says, "Because I'm afraid you would have stolen your daughter's back." And I think. Laban's reputation would have preceded him. People around there, his brothers, would have known, like, yeah, I think that's a pretty reasonable thing that Jacob is saying. And I think we see that towards the end. We'll get into this next week. But Laban, I think, realizes he loses the courtroom battle, so he wants to make this covenant of peace with him, uh, perhaps even to protect himself. Um, Okay, so... uh, and then in, in reference to the stolen gods, he says, go, go and look, go and look. And if you find it with anybody, they may die. And I wonder if there's a connection to Jephthah, who they're in Gilead. Jephthah is a judge from Gilead. And what's Jephthah famous for? Uh, making the rash vow. Uh, sacrificing his daughter. Right, yeah. You got that? Right. <laughs> OK, yeah. So, right, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't actually think it was a human sacrifice. I think it was a sacrifice of her um, uh, virginity and giving her to the temple. It's debated. But the point is he makes this vow, or he puts his daughter's life in jeopardy um, with this vow. And I wonder if there's something. I don't really know. I'm just giving it to you. Jacob doesn't know that Rachel stole it. So he basically risks her um, being killed back to the forensic aspect, I think that there's actually something to the fact of Rachel having sin, deserving to die, but escaping that punishment. Uh, that's, I think, also somewhere in that uh, milieu. Um, okay, and then, oh, this is, a, this is another thing I throw, I throw your way. Uh, there's an interesting parallel. I think this might anticipate Uh, something else where there's another there's another episode in Genesis where some kind of treasured pagan artifact is hidden and later um, well I'll just I'll just tell you Um, I I, I'm sorry no not Aiken. although that's interesting there might be something to that it's with it's with Joseph yeah Joseph but it, there's there's all kinds of similar um, patterns even but it's so so um, Laban overtakes Jacob in the in the uh, I think it's Genesis 44 the servant of Jacob or the servant of Joseph overtakes the brothers it's the same language um, Laban doesn't know that something is stolen from him Joseph intentionally puts a stolen item in, uh, in in the youngest sibling's uh, possession, in Benjamin. Uh, Rachel is the younger uh, daughter, so we have the youngest holding on to this stolen item. We also have the searching of Laban, it goes from oldest to youngest, starts with Jacob, goes to Leah, the concubines, and then Rachel. It's kind of an oldest to youngest type thing, or top to bottom kind of thing. And the same exact thing, we're told in Genesis 44, that the servant of Joseph searches from the oldest to the youngest. Um, In our passage, it's not found, in the Joseph passage, it is found. Um, And then... uh, here, it's a pagan idol. Does anybody know what it is that, that Joseph intentionally hides in, in Benjamin's thing? It's kind of a similar thing. Yes, it's a cup of divination. And, and, and Joseph is like, don't you know that I can practice divination with this cup? So it's one of these kind of murky, you know, uh, primitive things. It's like, is that a pagan kind of thing? It seems pretty pagan. But it's a cup of divination, so we have this kind of pagan, uh, this hidden pagan treasure. So I don't really know. I just throw that your way because I think that there's some uh, parallels there or anticipation. But what's most prominent to me, as uh, we talked about um, uh, last week, is that there's a woman who deceives a tyrant. We see this reversal of the curse. Uh, The serpent deceives the woman. Now the woman is deceiving the serpent. Uh, She's deceiving Pharaoh Laban, just like the midwives in Exodus deceived Pharaoh Pharaoh. We talked about her sitting on the idol as a kind of humiliation of the gods. Same thing with Exodus. The plagues humiliate the gods in which this culminates in Jesus humiliating the principalities and powers through uh, his death and resurrection. Paul says in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Um, I've I've heard some people say that. (laughs) This may be a, a kind of a, a crass way of describing it, but, but Christ spikes the football, right? He's, he makes a public spectacle of his enemies. He humiliates the gods. Um, so that's what I think a lot of this is, this divine deception, humiliation of the god uh, is, is culminating in. This is seen uh, somewhere else in scripture. There's a woman and there's a tyrant and there's a righteous man escaping And then there's an idol that's involved. Does anybody know? It's kind of an obscure passage. It's, um, I'll give a hint if nobody knows. It's, uh, the imagery is similar to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's when Michael helps David escape from Saul. Uh, In 1 Samuel 19, um, it says this. So Michael let David down through a window and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took a household idol. It's the same Greek uh, Hebrew word teraphim, uh and laid it on the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said he is sick. Right. So um, there's these aspects here uh, with uh, David and Saul as well. And then we talk, I suggested this. Uh, so th- that's a kind of the, I guess, the, the historical redemptive view of it. Um, on a kind of more negative side, we talked about this already. There could be, um, and I think that this is there. This also anticipates, I think, the idolatry or the sin of Israel coming out of Egypt. Um, that uh, later, because later in Genesis, Jacob has to tell his family before they get to Bethel. Jacob's making his way back to Bethel, back to the promised land. And before he makes it to Bethel, he tells his family, you have to get rid of your household gods. And so there's this there's this. Um, wandering period between the Exodus and then him actually coming to Bethel and before he actually gets to Bethel he's like we got to get rid of these household idols which is very similar to the children of Jacob, the Israelites they had to get rid of their idolatry and their sin before they actually entered into the heart of the promised land. Um, so I think that there's 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 a, a purification, a sanctification aspect here um, that we see uh, both with Jacob's proleptic exodus and then um, the final exodus. And then lastly, I'll end with this. Uh, if this is the, if we look at it from this perspective, that there's kind of residual sin and idolatry with Rachel. Uh, what does anybody remember what Rachel's name means? You Ew. Ew, right. It's a female sheep. If we think of it in this way, she's a spotted sheep. She has sin on her. She has idolatry still with her. Um, And so uh, these foreign gods uh, have this soiling effect. They have this this blemishing effect. And but she's under the headship of Jacob, whose God said, I will be with you. And she escapes the accusations and the searching out of the accuser of the brethren who goes and looks for the sin and can't find it. And this is a, this is an anticipation of the kind of salvation that we have, that kind of forensic justification as spotted sheep that the spotless lamb has given to us. We've escaped the devil. We've escaped the serpent, the serpentine tactics because of who our shepherd is, uh, the greater uh, Jacob. Uh, he protects us from the serpent. He forgives us of our sins and he brings us into uh, an everlasting inheritance. So let's go ahead and pray. The charge is this, trust in the Lord as your shield. God said to Abraham, don't be afraid. I am your shield and great reward. In our passage, we saw that the God of Abraham and Isaac was a shield for Jacob against the serpentine tactics of Laban. We live in a world filled with Laban's psychotic, selfish, irrational, demonically possessed fools who hate you. But the Lord is not for them, he is for you. He is for all those who trust in him, obey him, and are not ashamed to confess him before others. He is supernaturally active in the world, setting up the wicked for failure, crushing serpent heads, stacking the bodies of his enemies, and quietly prospering his small flock like Jacob, delivering them from tyranny, protecting them from evil men, being to us our shield and great reward. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.